everybody, and welcome to More of a Comment Than a Question. My name is Smriti Mehta, and joining me is my friend and co-host, Paul Connor. Paul, how how are you? How was your Thanksgiving? <laughs> I'm, I'm good. I had a good Thanksgiving. Um, we kept it pretty COVID safe. Uh, me and my wife just caught up nice. with her auntie. We had some lasagna and risotto and apple pie and ice cream, and it was good. How was yours? It was good. Yeah, I didn't do anything. I was invited to like this outdoor type, you know, gathering, but I it just didn't feel didn't feel right. So yeah, okay. just uh, hang out with my cats, which was very nice. Yeah. Okay, nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> what are we doing today, Paul? Okay, great. Um, yeah. So today we have a very special guest. Um, we are welcoming to the podcast Catherine McCabe a uh, social ecologist and director of the change agency um catherine welcome to more of a comment than a question yeah welcome thank you for joining us thank you i won't say i'm happy to be here i'm super nervous <laughs> to be here I'm, I'm, yeah <laughs> we're a little nervous to, okay so let me let me just set the table for for listeners of what what this is all about so um Kat is a, a longtime friend of mine. We met uh, many, many years ago in 2009. So I attended wow. a, a, a workshop, kind of like, a, I would call it like a deep ecology workshop um, in northern New South Wales in Australia. And Kat was one of the facilitators there. Um, I was very involved in environmental activism at the time, um, especially climate change activism and uh, Sue Lennox, who runs this organization that runs these workshops, sort of invited me to take one of these workshops for free. And it was an amazing experience, like a really powerful experience. Um, and, you know, Kat and I kind of bonded and we've been friends. Um, we've been friends ever since. But I mean, more, most recently, just kind of Facebook friends, right? Like we don't we don't really communicate that much, um, but we're still you know connected via Facebook. Anyway, recently... I noticed on Facebook that Kat had begun calling herself um, an anti-racism educator uh, and sharing some stuff that, yeah, I uh, <laughs> I found a bit questionable. So, like, I, you know, I um, have I listen to a lot of people, read a lot of people who are uh, a bit um, skeptical about modern anti-racism so the kind of ibram mm -hmm. kendi robin d'angelo school of anti-racism training um so i just i thought it i thought it might be interesting to talk to somebody who um is kind of involved in this world and and not trying to assume anything cat about how you feel about those people in particular but i just found it i found it uh interesting especially when you shared the emoji thing which hopefully hopefully we'll be able to we'll be able to get into and, and dig into. And I just okay, so like my perspective is a bit like oh here this uh this person that I really I really like uh and have been friends with for a long time and like used to be or probably still is or I guess I just thought, okay, you used to be kind of giving these deep ecology workshops, getting people sort of educated about environmental issues and stuff and and maybe now have sort of gravitated towards this 
this uh, kind of style of education or style of thinking about race and racism that I'm just not sure if it's that like helpful or I, I think, yeah. I So for me, this is, this is like just sort of my attempt to sort of understand what, what are you what are you teaching people about this stuff and and why and how like how do you think that's that's helping the world helping um race relations or helping people uh from marginalized groups and you know how i'm not i'm not loving this introduction uh, I, I guess <laughs> i guess okay so may like maybe like uh to put this in context cat shared something on facebook about uh emojis right and it was about um about uh the racism sort of embedded in emoji use uh and cat you might be able to explain this better than me but i think like the the main points of it was that um you know, we we need to be really aware of uh, race uh, when we are using emojis. Uh, there's racism embedded in emojis. The the yellow skin of the default emoji. The 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 claim being made was that that's based on white skin because in the Simpsons the white characters had had yellow skin and that became the default emoji, and that white people were using yellow emojis to avoid. Uh, like avoid acknowledging whiteness um uh something about white people should not use the fist uh because if you use a black fist you're appropriating this symbol from black activists and if you use a white fist that that is redolent of a white power symbol so we should stay away from using the fist and you know there was people in the comments sort of saying oh thank you so much for educating me about this I, i wasn't i wasn't aware of this and to me like this stuff is so like peripheral and unimportant and just like the the amount of with with all with all that's going on in the world and i think i made the comment some somewhat as a joke of like cat the world the world is dying uh and and so like with with everything going on in the world you know hundred thousand people homeless you know millions of refugees you know all the all the suffering in the world for anybody to sort of like basically if somebody claims that they're upset by emojis like if somebody's offended by emojis they probably have a pretty good life right like this is not yeah. like if this is if this is like something that somebody is actually like spending mental energy on they they probably don't have like really serious well they they may have a problem with their their own neuroticism right I, to me like the, for somebody to have the capacity to actually be upset and write books and papers like about racism in emoji use but i'm concerned when i see somebody who was i feel making such a positive impact for a lot of people about things that really really matter right like the the survival of our like global ecosystem now focusing their attention on something that let's face it very very few people of color would would claim to be like bothered by this or like aware of this or upset at this at all right so like what what i feel like happens in this world is that like 
everybody's so well-intentioned and and racism is this real problem and we do have like massive disparities between racial groups and like real real issues right like with like inequality between races and so many people like it like everybody nobody really want wants this right like there's very very few people that wouldn't want to sort of improve the inequality between races if they could and so like there's a lot of goodwill about this issue and we all want to do something about it and we all want to help people so like if even this really small minority of people of color like say well it's really upsetting to me like this issue with emojis that like yellow is the default or something like that my my feeling is like if these these claims like from a, a a really small subsection of people of color are just sort of um like given a lot of importance uh and and maybe taken more seriously than they they actually need need to be like and i think like yeah like it sounds very insensitive to to say to somebody yeah you know what like that's kind of a first world problem like it, you know if you're worried about emojis like i think you're probably you could probably have a pretty good life and i like i don't think that like there's a lot of people doing a lot worse than like this you know I'd, and maybe this is not really worth our time and attention but it it sounds insensitive to say that but i i also think like it like racism is a thing um but neuroticism <laughs> neuroticism is a thing too right and um confirmation bias and I, I just feel like this this modern mode of anti-racism um, where sort of any any kind of claim of racism being embedded in in anything or uh, is is given importance um, and 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 taken seriously and it it it's sort of like it's nurturing this sort of very like self-focused worldview that everything must be interpreted through the lens of race any upsetting experience to me like if i'm a person of color any upsetting experience i can sort of reinterpret as being a result of racism and this like systemic racist structure and stuff like that and i yeah i worry that that's not a particularly healthy worldview and like the path that we're going down with this stuff um is not really conducive to good race relations like it's not actually conducive to uh, a happy healthy functioning society just because of confirmation bias and oh god i'm i'm i know i've talked for like a really long time now and and said a lot but like yeah i so i'm i'm curious about your 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 perspective on this and and i, I like i'm also conscious that we haven't even let you say what you think about all this stuff yet really i like i i'm probably imputing like a lot of a lot of beliefs in you that you may or may not hold so i i guess let me just like I've, I've ranted, yeah, I've ranted for talking. a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, what, what do you, th- what do you think? Like, what, what's your kind of reaction to to what I'm saying? It's really nice not to be not to be pushed into reaction. Actually, you know. So I'm remembering that first comment that you made on that emoji post, um, and I. It's so interesting, and this is what happens. You know, when people are not friends and why I appreciate this potential to have this conversation because if you had not been somebody that I cared about and then once I understood what you meant by your comment cat the world's burning I would have been like okay dismiss right like okay we're not going to bother having a further conversation when you what's funny for me is that when you said that cats the world burn cat the world is burning I was like oh Paul gets it. He gets how this little piece 
of emoji uh, of an example of an emoji okay and I, you know I, I haven't thought about the emoji thing particularly strongly that was just an example of, of a sharing for me so but it's it's really relevant and everything that you said that I said about the use of emojis I stand by I believe that so you're not misrepresenting me there um, so when you said that I thought oh he really gets how this is a part of a systemic system of oppression he gets that Yes, the world is burning. And look how ridiculous and minute an emoji is. And look how it's totally part of the same system that normalizes and makes one identity a majority and the other's subsets of that majority. It's just a little example. Why it was interesting to me when I saw that post is because I have hovered over that color thumb before. And I've done it with some some level of like curiosity and consciousness as to like, oh, I wonder what color I'm supposed to suggest. You know, I'm I'm white. Am I supposed to go yellow? Am I supposed to go white? Uh, you know, I definitely didn't think I was supposed to go another color, but I didn't know. So to me, having it was something that I had in the past questioned, um, which I think is indicative of like this, like would a person of color look at those thumbs and query which one? to use but like whiteness is invisible it's a normalized it's the norm so we don't have to think about that okay i'm not totally sure how the emojis are part of like systemic anything so i use the yellow emoji almost exclusively like i don't use anything else and i don't see a problem with that um I also, I mean, there's actually, yeah, like there's no color that matches my color exactly or which is, you know, I think that's also fine, you know, like Like you can't, right? There's only limited things you can, I mean, maybe that will change. The one thing that I was thinking about as I was thinking about this emoji stuff is I was a beauty advisor for some time. And there, I mean, there are a lot of, a a beauty advisor, like beauty advisor. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's certain companies, like certain high-end companies, like um, makeup brands that didn't didn't used to make like dark colored foundations, for example, right? Dark colored makeup. And I think part of that was on purpose to keep people, you know, certain, they didn't want certain people, a certain skin color to use their products, essentially. That to me is a real problem. That seems like a problem worth solving where you're trying to exclude people and not creating products that, you know, that, that you don't want certain people to use them. And that to me seems like a much better use of somebody's time to focus on that. But the emoji stuff, I'm not totally convinced how that's a real issue. Yeah, and and I accept that it absolute it, it might not be. It, you yeah. know, I'm I'm not saying that that is something that we should spend a whole lot of focus on. It just <laughs> happens to be the beginning of this story. Like to me, it's a really interesting to me i would i would perceive it as a microaggression it's yet another way that whiteness is normalized and that you know other colors and other identities are subsets of that that to me it's just another example of that that i found interesting but can can you say a bit more about why you think that it's normalizing whiteness because i don't see that either yeah um to me it was really interesting so i mean you may may or may not agree but um in that particular article they were describing the connection between the yellow and the simpsons and that we had kind of interpreted yellow as kind of neutral like it's not it's like almost non-human so it's kind of like post-race so it's safe 
But in The Simpsons, which is where they say in this article that the yellow came from, but in The Simpsons, non-white characters are not yellow. So it's not like all Simpsons characters are yellow. Only the white ones are yellow. So therefore, it's like white equals yellow in The Simpsons. Hmm. Yeah, it's... So... Are Asians what, what color are Asians in The Simpsons? There's, I don't want. They're sometimes <laughs> they're sometimes a bit paler than the yellow, but they they actually are sometimes yellow. But I also huh. like think, okay, so I think it's definitely true that cultures normalize majority identities, right? Like the de- default, the default is straight, not gay. The default, at least in white majority company countries, is white, not black. Um, Except that the global majority is, cis, is non-white, cis which is not, interesting. Cis not trans. Right, but, like, oh. The Simpsons was an American show right. and, like, created for, like, an American audience and the, the, the characters were white. So, like, I mean, emojis... Um, emo- I don't know the history of emojis, but if you... If it's, like... I always try to think of these th- like things in terms of like well if Japanese people invented emojis and those emojis looked like th- you know the prototypical east asian looking japanese person to me that would just be like okay that makes sense mm-hmm. uh that makes sense to be the default in a country where most most people look like that I I guess yeah. I can I can kind of see like if you are a minority in Japan like if I'm black in Japan and all the characters in all the the manga comics and all like the emojis look like these Japanese people and and don't look like me. I I guess I yeah I can kind of see like there's this subtle psych, psychological othering going on. Like I, I do remember like in in a philosophy class like I so like both Smriti and I t- took philosophy and it's fascinating because like anything written before like 1990 there's always hypothetical examples in philosophy and they're always a he but before <laughs> yeah. 1990 and then like post 1990 they're always a she uh and it's really like it's really like jarring the first time you start to see uh these hypothetical examples with a she i started to be like wait what why does she <laughs> why does this hypothetical person have to be a woman but then like taking a class and talking about it is like oh well why did it always have to be a man previous to this we, we're now trying to like redress that right. that balance but i think that that because gender is split 50 50 that's a totally mm. legitimate thing to say well why should the default be uh right. male rather than female but yeah. when you have a country that's like majority one race it's it it's it's less clear that it's it's yeah yeah it, it's a, it's a subtle thing because like even though like I I struggle to like you know blame Japanese people for making most of their characters look like Japanese people because that's what the majority of people in their culture look like I guess I can see this like maybe like subtle psychological harm coming from like lack of representation and I think like yeah people seem like people seem to think like representations are very important and stuff like that i guess like for me to me what what it comes down to is like well yeah there's this sense that now there's this accusation of 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 racism just thrown about um for things like emoji use that are just pretty like innocuous kinds of behavior and and I don't really sure. Th- I don't. I don't disagree with that for a second. That mm. a lot of our behavior 
is innocuous. Mm. Z- zero ill intent. I have used y- yellow emojis without think without knowing that some people think that there's an alignment with a normalization of whiteness. Do I spend any more time thinking about emoji use than that one article and what it showed me about emojis? Genuinely, no. Like, I have a lot bigger battles to fight and a lot more change to create. Like, I, I, I don't think about the emojis. I think that's granulizing it. Um, and just to refer back to the comment around, like, 50-50 for gender, like, I also don't see that there's a 50-50 split in gender. Like, gender, from where I would sit, is, is not a binary. And so thinking about it even in terms of she and he is something that I'm trying to move my thinking and my language beyond. And I think that that's worth saying, too. And from what, I, from what I've heard, the global majority is non-white at a global level. So it's not about majority, it's about, to me, and, and that's where I've been, you know, and to come back to what you were saying in the opening there, that, you know, I was doing really helpful, supportive work, and it was, um, you know, making a difference in the world, and then, you know, you fear that I've moved moved away from that into some kind of granular, you know, hand-wringing, oh, everything's racist, and we can't possibly move forward with anything, because it's all racist. Like, you know, of course, I don't see myself like that. But I do think that my work has kind of, through my awareness, like I'm a group facilitator. That's how I see myself. And my primary aim in creating groups is safe spaces. Like I thought that that's what I was brilliant at. I thought that that was my gift. However, I was missing a whole lens of understanding how my experiences and the identities that I hold and my lack of awareness of the privilege inherent in those was creating unsafe spaces for people who didn't hold those identities. I had no idea. I couldn't see it. A lot of labor had to be done to help me see that I had ways of being that were completely non-intentional. Like my whole life is about creating safe spaces for groups. So now I would see my work as being like kind of two places and one is still that transformative approach, like looking at worldviews and values and understanding who we are and our place in the world and how to create change, like what you participated in. And the other is about harm reduction. And so this anti-racism piece to me is a harm reduction. Okay, that's probably worth exploring a bit more. So you said that you came to realize or somebody sort of confronted you with ways in which you were creating non-safe spaces for people of color so when i hear that my 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 prior my assumption is that you probably weren't like you you know if if there's a, a a person of color who felt unsafe in your space this is probably a person with like deep personal issues and personal trauma sort of like um uh, projecting projecting issues like reading into things that you're saying that you didn't that were just not your intention um and so like my my assumption would be the vast majority of people of color would not would not have experienced that from you like in my experience of you so can you give like clear like what is a clear example of something that you were doing that was creating an unsafe space for people of color that you needed to change and and how you've changed that to now be more because the another side of this is that when we but when we become this modern version of anti-racism 
I feel like we <laughs> we become very awkward in the presence of people of color, right? Right. We start to treat them not as individuals, yeah. but as members of their identity groups, and we start to walk on eggshells around them for fear of saying something right. or that we've heard is offensive to people of color, and we're constantly like constantly worrying about how the interaction is going. And my experience is that most people of color really, really don't like that, and they like it, it, it's actually they don't. Most people don't see themselves as victims of this like mm -hmm. system of oppression and just kind of see themselves like no I'm not like Smriti right like I'm I'm not an I'm not an Indian just treat me as like I'm an individual I'm treat me as Smriti is is so yeah like let's let's dig into that like what what were you actually doing to create quote unquote unsafe spaces and and how have you changed that because I, I yeah I'm I'm curious. Because uh, I, I, when I hear it, I'm instantly a bit, a bit skeptical, and and I feel like, yeah, like you've you you want with all your good intentions and and wanting to be anti-racist and and caring like about inclusion have been told something and just like accepted it uncritically. Maybe is is my well, I, is my I, I wasn't trying to be anti-racist, and mm. I wasn't trying to be inclusive, and and it reminds me of a, a quote I heard at the weekend actually. Um, a, a woman in a training workshop I was in that said from another woman of color um, first of all I want you to forget that I'm black right which is about that like see me see me in my fullness and then don't you ever forget that I'm black right so for me it's like I wondered actually when I was thinking about talking to you about this because I certainly experienced it as an Irish person with this accent in foreign countries and I wonder, do you get that a lot to the point where it annoys the hell out of you? Like, oh, where are you from? You're from Australia. Where about you, Australia? I spent so many times in Australia. Like, maybe that doesn't happen so much in America. But to me, that was my experience anywhere I've traveled. And it's like, through gritted teeth, you know that they're trying to connect. You know that their intention is to, you know, find a way to connect with you. But it's such a reductionist comment because I'm instantly, oh yeah, sorry, I forgot that I'm performing Irishness for you. Right, I forgot that. That's what you think I am. So to me, that's what helps me imagine uh, what it's like to experience oppression on, in various ways as a person of colour. And also as a woman, like I identify as a woman, I've experienced many occasions um, men with good intention being oppressive to me. So the people who gave me that feedback, it's because I was erasing the fullness of their identity and not assessing, like in systems thinking, we talk about um, one of the starting places being a sensitivity to initial conditions, right? It's one of the core components of engaging with changing complex systems. Because of my gaps in understanding of the differentials between power that are held by my identity and other people's identity that are not white, especially, and, and other identities. Um, I just didn't know that there was a power differential that affected immediately the whole context that we were operating in. And so I didn't attune my facilitation <laughs> to that. I didn't assess the identity that I was holding. I'm seeing so much emotion on both of your faces it's hard to continue this conversation <laughs> okay, so and we breathe what so what you're saying to me sounds like you're saying that there's a power differential between you and i that you somehow hold more power than i do and i just don't buy that 
That's like, awesome. Just, if you don't I, experience that, I'm so happy to hear I that. I mean, it's not that I don't experience it. I think that's a really... That's, I don't think that's a good attitude for white people to have. I think that in itself is somewhat of a racist idea to think that, to think that, you know, that white people inherently hold more power. Isn't that sort of racist? (laughs) I mean, I'm not saying we're born with, I'm saying that there's structurally imbued systems of power and how race is related to i mean that's so interesting that you would disagree with that that's so fascinating Uh, yeah no but do hmm. so like i guess i i kind of wanted a specific example and and you sort of like answered with a lot more generality so like you so you're saying like you were giving these workshops and you were sort of interacting with people of color without being aware that you uh as your identity as a white person you hold this kind of power over them um or you're you're like connected to this group that has power over over their group and i guess that just gets back to what i was kind of saying about like do people really want to be treated as representative of groups rather than as individuals because like when you were but like prior to your sort of um uh, introduction to these ideas when, when you were like not aware of these power dynamics lurking between seemingly innocuous relations like do you, do you think you were treating people differently based on the color of their skin like do you think you were stereotyping people or like if like there was a black person or a latino person or a person from a minority racial group like do you think you were like was there any do you think you were just yeah treating them differently or unfairly or not treating them as as individuals or like yeah i'm still just trying to understand what was it that you were doing that was unsafe for these people and and how you've sort of changed it now changed your approach now to 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 make it safe well i mean i'm working on making it safe um yeah i do think that i have internalized supremacy white supremacy for sure like did i know that i have it no do i work on becoming conscious of it and trying to unpack it yes like all the time um but to me like what you're arguing is like a denial of is there inherent is there an inherent power imbalance between you and i paul like to me there is like the norm is white men the norm of power in our society of what we perceive to be the most powerful identity are cis straight white men like for for me to be feeling fully safe in any interaction with you i would really want you to be aware of that you know like i would want you to be aware of that as my friend i would want you to be aware of that if we were colleagues i would want you to be aware of that certainly if you were holding a, a structural position like if you were my boss or something you know like you might come up to another guy from behind while they're sitting at their desk right and maybe lean in and that might be fine now there is a power differential in our gender identity that make that totally not fine for me because of all the experiences that I've had in my life 
that has told me that, oh, what is going on here? There's something that I need to mm. at least bring some cautiousness to. Mm. Now, if I thought that you were oblivious to that, it would impact how I felt around you, how safe I felt around you. Uh, so, can, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was just. So, th- I mean, the idea of, I guess, like, I am really worried that trying to get people to constantly be thinking about this and constantly being aware of, oh, I am white and this person's brown or black and I am a male and this person's a female. I'm not sure that's going to lead to, like Paul was saying, like better race relations or better gender relations, right? I mean, I think I told Paul this before, right? I mean, my name is very difficult. And when I first moved to this country, you know, people would, yeah, often ask and they would attempt it. Now, like most people don't. And I think that's worse. Like, I think that's, that's, we're going in not the right direction, right? I think people are so afraid that anything they might say or anything they might, like even for you, like you said, right? If people are asking, oh, are you Irish? Where are you from? I think that's wonderful. Like how else are you supposed to make connections with people unless you're curious about who they are and you can sort of have, ask them about their differences and learn more about them. But if we're constantly going to think that people are microaggressing against us because they want to know more about us, like, I don't think that's, that's not a good way to lead a life. You know, like if, if we're going to just impute bad intentions on people for just asking the most, you know, yeah, innocuous things where there, we, it's clear that it's coming from a good place. Mm. I'm not sure. Is it, yeah. Is it the model for pro like racial yeah, is progress? It, yeah, like, progress. okay. So like, I mean, one, one thing I often, yeah. So so for example okay so we know that confirmation bias is a thing right like if you um if you are sort of uh have a certain belief um about it like there's a famous psychological experiment where they basically they showed two groups of students the same lecture and one of them they said oh this lecturer he's really nice he's really warm and the uh, he that's his reputation on campus and then the other group they they said oh this lecturer he's not very nice he's a bit cold right and then they showed them the same lecture and then they asked them oh so what did you what did you think of, of the lecturer now the group that was told oh this is a really nice guy they were like yeah he seems he seemed really nice the group that was told yeah he's he's a jerk they were like oh yeah he seemed like a bit of a jerk so you get this this yeah. effect, even though they they saw exactly Exactly the same lecture. Their yeah, expect- we, all, we all bring lenses to any situation, right? Mm. Yeah. Their expectation colored their perception of reality, right? And and yeah. it seems to me that if the worldview you're promoting is that in any interaction um, we we interact not as individuals but as members of identity groups and these these power structures and that well, ev- it's both like it's everything- both as individuals and as part mm. of power structures with identity groups. So it it has to be both. So it's like first forget I'm black, then never forget I'm black. So but to come back to you, that, that, that doesn't make sense. Like you can't. Like, so you it's like so as an Irish person it, for who not experienced just to be a paradox. as an and there's a lot of paradox in this, and and that's one of the reasons I'm I'm drawn towards it because I think there's a lot of truth inside of those. So for example, with the with the Irish thing, like what I experienced, I didn't have the language for it. I didn't know that it was a, a microaggression. I didn't. I just knew it felt like. Like, you don't see me when you say that. 
you don't see me. You have just seen a performance of what you think Irishness is. The conversation was never about connection. It was never about, tell me how it's going here. Wow, how long you... It was just like the superficial, you are a projection of what I think Irishness is and I have no attempt to see you beyond that as well as within that. That's the paradox for me. Um, I, yeah, yeah, like interesting. I, yeah, let me, let me try to finish the, the thought, um, that I, I was going with before. Like if you, yeah, in, if you sort of like encourage this view where, okay, we're both, right? So we're, we're individuals, but we're also members of these groups and there's these power dynamics going on between these groups. And, but it's more than that, right? Like, so the, I think the idea is that there is a system of domination, Right. Like it's not just that there's these groups and we're associated with groups that have different levels of power. And I mean, I'd love to unpack what power actually means. I think mostly comes down to like economics or um, majority sort of cultural dominance as being the default or whatever you said. There's but, four kinds. You're going to love this. All right. Great. <laughs> but <laughs> if you. Yeah. So if you. Or hate it. If, if you sort of promote this as like, oh, this is the way we should interact with each other. Um, as people is to be or like always aware of these like the the principle of confirmation bias is that what what you will do is you will subjectively increase the extent to which people experience, experience. microaggressions yeah. and like experience things that upset them from other people right because they've been specifically focused on seeing people as members of groups rather than as individuals so if you and like i mean traditionally the the uh, anti-racist view like the Martin Luther King view was like try not to see people as members of groups right like try to look past the person's skin color try to see who they are as an individual try not to like see oh, I'm interacting with a black person I'm interacting with a Latino person try to be like I'm interacting with John I'm interacting with uh, Amanda right so the yeah like I I worry that this view is actually counterproductive. It like it it makes people less comfortable. It makes people more unhappy. Like more subjectively experiencing these like microaggressions and moments of oppression and things that upset them, because they're just looking for them everywhere. They've been sort of trained to be like hyper alert to these things, and now you start seeing racism everywhere. Like racism in emojis. I saw an article the other day is white people owning dogs racist? Uh, and it, 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 it had some, <laughs> like, and yeah, like, uh, so Wait, I, like, I know, like, I know, I'll, I'll, we can put it in the show notes. I, I don't, I think it was something about the cultural origins of this, this thing. Like, but, you know, so I worry that you are inadvertently doing harm uh, by encouraging people to see themselves as uh, members of identity groups rather than as individuals. Because I, I think most injustice in a society, in, in our society, can be thought of at the individual level, right? If, if this kid grows up poor, right, he doesn't have access to good education, like you can think about that as being unfair and as him as not having a fair chance and unequal opportunity in a society um, if he grows up in a poor neighborhood with high, high crime. And um, you can sort of think about that without really thinking about identity groups at all. You can sort of see like, well, what, what level of sort of privilege and advantage does this individual have um, rather than sort of seeing him as a member of a, a an identity group? And yes, yeah, certainly like there's like some level, 
some level of disadvantage and advantage that you can probably ascribe to racial groups. Like we we have enough evidence, uh, you know, our, and our friend Manny would sit here for hours and, and talk through like all the studies that sort yeah. of show that there's these subtle differences in how white people are responded to and black people are responded to. Yeah. Um, there was a really good study in Australia recently. And not so subtle. Yes. You know, as you can see from the extreme violence that happens in America right now with movements around Black Lives Matter. So it's not just subtle, it's extreme violence well, against people of colour and black people. I mean... Yeah, well, maybe let's let's not, let's not <laughs> get into that. Like, like <laughs> some some of the some of the statistics about like actual like policing in the U.S. and um, and race are not not as stark as you might actually imagine. Um, but but that study with the buses was really the good. study That's with the, the buses was really about. yeah. This was yeah, yeah, like yeah. a really interesting study in Australia where they had. Um, experimental uh, confederates so people working with the experimental team getting on buses and just saying hey i don't have money can you take me to the next stop right and what they found was like a pretty stark difference where the bus drivers were much more likely of all races of bus driver by the way asian Mm -hmm. bus drivers indian bus drivers were much more likely to do a favor for this person if they were white rather than black right so like we do we do have evidence and also if they were male yeah yeah um, if also if they were male, yeah, that's interesting, yeah. right? So is um, that not speaking to the identity group argument then, from your perspectives? Or, no, or? like it, yeah, it it certainly it certainly is, but I, yeah, it certainly is, but I also worry that, um, yeah, it's it's like if you. Yeah, but so it, I also don't think of that as like a interpersonal interaction. Right. Mm. I think that's a little bit different. Like we're not I'm not I'm not saying that slight like things like this don't exist. Right. That there aren't these subtle Mm. everyday interactions that you have with people Mm. where your race does play a part. And we all I mean, heuristics are a thing. Right. People use when you're Mm. having these really short interactions with others that I'm sure it plays like on average, it plays a part. And of Mm. course, we need to be mindful of that. But yeah, I mean, the. I guess one example that I would come back to Can is... Can you just guess, complete so, that thought there, Smriti? I'd be interested in here, but what? But what do you... But I think... But I think... The way forward, I don't think, is to make people con- like constantly aware or make them feel guilty about the color of their skin, right? I, I feel like if if black people or brown people should not be made to feel like the color of their skin determines anything about them, I don't think white people should be made to feel like that either. Sure, and that's definitely not my intention, for sure, is to make people feel guilty over the color of their skin. No way. My gosh, but don't you think this whole movement is doing that? Right? There's a, I mean, obviously I, mean, I don't, but it's really interesting that you do. So I'd love to. That's, it's so fascinating. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to keep an open mind, obviously. I can see that we all are. I just find it it's really fascinating that, I mean, that I, you see that. Yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? It's like, you know, we think we're helping and, mm. and the I intention mean, I, Yeah, is, I think like a lot of people just are just sort of like very, you know, again, yeah, walking on eggshells and just very careful and constantly... Mm feeling like they need to apologize for being white and i'm not okay with that right i I mean i've been in you know situations where people are trying to say that you know white men shouldn't be asking questions in conferences 
And I think that's absurd. I'm like, imagine you were a teacher in a class and you have some white boys in your class that are trying to ask questions. Are you going to tell them that they shouldn't be asking questions because they're white and male? Like, that's not progress. I, I don't mm. think... No, it's not. And just to use that specific example, because I think it can be helpful just to and, 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 you know, in my private discussions with Paul, where we got to a yes to have this, I was so keen to try to have a dialogue and not a debate. So I'm having to keep reminding myself, like, I'm actually not hoping to convince ye. That's not my dominant intention here. Like, I really am trying to have a, a dialogue right. about that. So, for yeah. example, with that, you know, that comment that men shouldn't speak in conferences, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it is ludicrous, okay? Because having a, a rule like that, that um, seeks to oppress people as an identity, I can see how that would be um, inflaming and how you would push back against that. What I find interesting and helpful about that is that it's, I mean, I don't know where that story came from, right? I don't know how it was said, whatever, whether it was an exact rule. But it reminds people who are men that they tend to take up more space in social settings because of the systems and structures of power that they have been enculturated in. Like, there is tons of studies on that. Men take up more space. But so yes. a reminder like that is like, please be aware that that's the identity that you hold. And when you speak, be aware that if me like if 10 other people have spoken and they're also men, step back. Gosh, but but if if men are taking more space, then should we be telling them not to take more space or mm. should we be telling women and people of color to take up? more space yeah it's an interesting right? example if 10 other men have spoken and i have a question you're saying yeah. I, sh I should step back right but like that that all revolves around me saying oh well i'm connected to these 10 other guys i mean i'm part of this male male group with these other guys right so like my group has spoken 10 times yeah right? but yep. if you don't if you're not dividing up the room by gender and you're just there at a conference and you're trying to listen and you have a question you're like well yeah, 10 other people have spoken yeah. and mm -hmm. I, have, I haven't spoken yet and I still have my question. Totally. Like, I, I'm not sure I, I do need to step back because like... Because you're not seeing the way, from my perspective, you're not seeing the ways in which identity informs those interactions. So you're erasing the other um, power differentials within the room. And you see that all the time. It's like, it's just starting to be unearthed now. So it's awkward and it's clunky. And like, I would never have identified that there was such a thing as a manal, right? An all-male oh, panel, oh, all-man panel. Oh. Mm. You know, and now I'm like, how could you not see that? How could I not see that and call it out? And then how could you, as people who are men on panels, not be like, whoa, there's mm. no representative diversity on this panel. That's not okay. But the norm that we've internalized I, is that it's totally fine because, you know. It, I mean, it's like, why, why is it not okay, right? Like, so, you know, there's a lot of men in the world. There's a lot of women in the world. Uh, some fields are dominated by women. Some fields are dominated by men, right? So if there was a, like a panel in a female-dominated field, just by randomness, 
you could easily imagine that you would yeah. have an all-female panel, right? And and if there's a panel in a relatively male-dominated field, you could easily imagine that. The, and so this idea that but like, you have to peel back the whole system of like how did that become a male-dominated field? <laughs> no, but I like, mean, I nursing, don't think, but like, nursing have, is a female-dominated do. field, right? Imagine I was at a teaching conference; most of the people there would be female. Yes. And there would be like a much less, you know, a lower number of males. Does that mean that the females should then step back and say, oh, we should let more of the men talk because this is a female dominant conference? That I think it would be sense. a helpful approach to if there was mm. an awareness around that. But it's not quite mm. the same because the structures of oppression are not across the board in terms of how women are given access yeah. to power versus how men are given access to power. Yeah, like that's, I mean, that's the rub, right? Like, you, I yeah, guess what, what we're saying rub, is yeah. like, you know, you, you're sort of jumping to this conclusion that there's these systems of oppression if there's an all-male panel, right? And I guess like from from my perspective, a lot of these kind of claims are, are made with not that much sort of evidence behind them, right? So uh, um, I wanted to go back. So you earlier you said, you think you had internalized white supremacy, right? And 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 you think you were, um, in in you were creating an unsafe space because you were interacting with people uh, without being aware of of the power dynamics between you. But I still, you still haven't really given us a concrete example of how you were making people of color feel unsafe, or how you would internalize white supremacy, how this was actually affecting your behavior, because. I feel like, you know, it's all well and good to sort of use these terms, at least vague terms. I had internalized white supremacy, like I was unaware of power dynamics. But like, if these things are having any effect in the world, they're having an effect through concrete behaviors or uh, like actions that we've taken. And I, I'm really curious because I, I guess I just know you and I really doubt you were being racist to anybody. Like, I, like oh, I'm like, giving you the benefit I mean, of the doubt. I definitely wasn't like, consciously really... racist, for God's sake. There's very right. few of us that are consciously racist. I think, you know, to give examples, it requires that I set up a whole framework of thinking about um, white supremacy and patriarchy and colonization. Like, to me, when we think about the systems of oppression, as my teacher, Suki, told me, these are the three horsemen of the apocalypse, Right. So they hold up and inform the way that all of us perceive the world. They shape our worldview, they shape our understanding of what normal is, of what you know good is, of what value is, of what the right way of thinking is. So for example, and then those ways of those systems of oppression show up in three different scales. So if we think about the internalized scale, the interpersonal scale, like they're showing up here right now, and then the um, institutional scale. So, you know, who gets to go on a visa to America? Who gets to go on a visa to Australia, right? What, which ones of us get an opportunity that, you know, we take for granted? Uh, right, right. Like, so... I so mean, at all of those different scales, those systems of oppression show up. So, right, for well, example... Just, okay, go, go. So, for example, at the institutional level, so I was working in a college in, in Canada, super diverse, deliberately racially diverse student body, predominantly white teaching staff. Now, that doesn't just happen. 
Like there are systems that exclude people, some of them even unconsciously. So when I was in the director role in a program there, I, and, and then I had this lens on, because I didn't always have this lens of, of oppression and racism. So through this lens then, I could see um, things that were happening institutionally that definitely, like to, so to some extent I agree with you, like it gave me a lens to see the world through. And it does make me see things through this lens as a result. So am I neurotic and making stuff up? I don't know. None of us really know if we're being neurotic and making stuff up. But I could see things through this lens that I felt were um, further privileging people who already had privilege. So, for example, I would get an email in my director role that said, um, you know, such and such as son is going to be applying for that position this summer you know right okay there's an application process you know go ahead and put the application in thanks very much for your interest um i'm not sure you understand um that that's like a certain certain person in the institution who's like you know holds a lot of power like they they're you know in a high level in this position and like even the normalization of that asking is privilege it's either racial privilege or it's class privilege. Yeah. Right? Well, but it's was, some I'm, normalization that say. like, says, I, I, I have a right that's, that's to be in that like position. That's a class thing. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. In, in, in India, so to me, they're all connected. All the in, yeah. You know, you, you would see that all, all over the world, I think, right? Mm. Yeah. Like if that's... you're like a rich Indian, it's easier for your kid to be rich. If you're a rich Japanese person, it's easier for your kid. Like it's a privilege like privilege is a thing like class class privilege is a thing like my dad taught that to me when i was five years old like (laughs) the way the system's set up it's easier for the rich to get richer uh and like you know it struck me as wrong then and it strikes me as wrong now but like the extra layer you're adding to that is that oh well this is this is about race like yeah and and i think like that can be a mistake when there is a system that is pretty like a system of oppression that's pretty like obvious and undeniable on the class level uh but to actually to make it about race you have to sort of now be sort of reading intentions into people and like proposing that we all have implicit bias and stuff like that so the canada the canadian school example is really interesting right so you said all the staff were white but it was a super diverse student body right um, and like the conclusion that we're supposed to jump to these days is, ah, oh, well, it's, it's, a, it's a racist system that's excluding these people. However, like you can, you can also see like in a society, uh, if there was just more people graduating college that were white 20 years ago, or th- like 30 years ago, uh, why you would, you would end up with like mostly faculty that are white in an institution. If you have massive like economic inequality between races and white people are just going to college and getting educated more, you can see why, well, they would become the people in the society with the degrees and stuff like that. So, so like, can I just pair back this to try and grasp? Cause I think my mind is really struggling to understand why your mind is struggling. <laughs> so you accept that there is Racism, like you're not denying the existence of racism or institutional racism or systemic racism, are you? Well, it's just that you think that, like, talking about it and highlighting it in the particular way that I do, is is harmful because it reduces people to that identity and removes their humanity. Is that it? Well, no, maybe I, I guess I just am. Um 
like I I do question whether like how much is added by like talking about race as opposed to class. Uh, I think it might be more productive in a lot of these cases to be talking about uh, social class privilege. Um, I do think like people. I do think this way of thinking about the world can create very inaccurate perceptions of the world in people's minds in a harmful way. Right. So like if you look at statistics, it, like you can look at like the the larger scale of sort of police stops. Um, sort of showed that there was this slight racial disparity. Um, they did this pretty clever analysis of like looking when this after the sun goes down and people can't see the race of the driver. There's a slight uh, slight difference yeah. in how much black people are getting stopped. Black people still get stopped more, probably because of like the neighborhoods that police are in and, and things like this. But like, and so there is that slight disparity there. But it's like it's nothing like. It's nothing like every time. Like, I feel like what the worldview you're encouraging, any time a black person gets stopped by a white cop, they will interpret it as uh, this is because I'm black. This is racist. Right? Yeah. Uh, and that'll lead to anger. That'll lead to upset. That'll lead to hurt. The statistics would sort of indicate that it's like a handful per thousand where you could you could actually say, yeah, this person was stopped. They wouldn't have been stopped if they were white. And even then, it's very difficult in this data to control for social class. So you don't you don't really know if it's a race thing as, as opposed to a class thing, right? So my my I guess my impression is that like while racism is a thing, you can show it in statistics and you can show like non-zero effects. We're being encouraged to think that it's this all-encompassing huge influence over human behavior when the statistics don't don't really back that up and that the most logical thing if you're a black person and you're stopped by the cops the 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 vast majority of times it's not because of your race uh, and it had nothing to do with your race and you should just sort of like follow the police officer's instructions and not like have this burning anger and hatred and and feeling of like oh, i'm being racially oppressed right now i was i was thrown in um i was thrown in the drunk tank in melbourne when i was 18 right and i was like walking home from a bar the police stopped me i wasn't doing anything wrong they they threw me in the drunk tank for no good reason i was banging on the door like i was like what did i do this cop came in hit me in the gut and said like are you gonna shut up now and i was like yeah okay, okay i will so for me i know that that wasn't to do with my race right like because i'm i'm white like why why would i think it's about my race so like i don't think about that ever right like the only the only time i think about it is in context of conversations like you i feel like if i was black and i had been through an anti-racist training and that exact same thing had happened to me this would like become a life-defining experience of like racial oppression by racist police like i i mean i have a i have a black friend who like anytime you discuss racism he'll bring he'll bring back this time that the police drew their guns on him um, and I think they were looking for some suspect and it was this, uh, it was this big deal. They saw him, they drew their guns on him, hugely like traumatic event that he will sort of continue referring to all his life as like this real evidence that he has of his ra- racist oppression. And my, my sense is that like, he, like he doesn't really know that. And the statistics don't really back up that he should jump to that conclusion. And I just feel like you, you're sort of encouraging people to, uh, see racism in almost every situation, every negative event in their life, any negative interaction with a white person, when for the most part, if you look at the statistics, it's not, it's, it's not the logical conclusion. Like, yes, it happens at, a, at an above zero rate, but no, we probably shouldn't be going around interpreting every interaction in our lives through this lens. Um, so that's, that's me. That's how I sort of reconcile the statistics where you can show yes no racism does exist 
with also this belief that, well, you know, we probably shouldn't be focusing so much on this. We shouldn't be viewing every interaction through this lens. That could be harmful. That could be leading us down a dangerous path. I know you have something to say. I mean, first of all, I'm not teaching racism to black and people of color. Like the work that I do is, is for and with white people. Um, so I suppose my default in comparison to yours or what I'm hearing from your default is I believe the experience of people and what they're telling me. So when I think about my own identities, so especially as a woman, I think about, you know, the Me Too movement, for example, and I think about, um, uh, what's the name of that show, Mad Men, you know, and this comes back to, Smirti, what you were saying earlier, like, you know, do men need to step back or do women need to step in? Like, I think you only need to see the hyper-exaggerated, but true for the time, experience of women in Mad Men to know, like, they were stepping in, you know, we're stepping in all the time to try to take up spaces from people who have a dominant identity and it's really hard when those people who hold that dominant identity of structural power or identity power don't recognize that so that's why my work is with white people who i think will make a safer world by recognizing those inherent inequities so that then they can be conscious of them and address them and be aware of them is that creating awkwardness as we white people learn oops We've had a shit ton of privilege that we haven't been aware for, aware of, and now we have to learn to hold that with sensitivity and to share that as much as we actively can. Yeah, it's really awkward. Like, yeah, I wish I didn't know this or see the world like this or have to act like this. Absolutely. Do I hear from the people that I work with that this is more helpful? Yes. You know, and do I hear from you and others and I don't want to discount your experience that it's not helpful and that it might be harmful? Yes. Like uh, this to me is not like a simple answer. Like and I don't also see everything as through race. I see it through this systemic oppression piece of which race is one element of which class is another element of which gender is another element. Body size is another element. Uh, Color of your skin. You know, if you're if you're a person of color. You get colorism within there, like lighter skinned people of color have more privilege or seem to have more access to privilege than others, for example. So to me, it's like, and that's why I thought you got it when you said, cat, the world is burning, because to me, it's all part of this one of this system of oppression that seeks to alienate us from nature. So the deep ecology stuff is still in there through this colonial perspective that we have absolutely internalized. So, for example, I have internalized capitalism because I'm a total overworker and I find it really hard to slow down and focus on relationships over output, even though relationships are the thing I value most in the world, right? Because I have internalized this perception of the need for output rather than focusing on the need for building relationships of care and of support for each other. So that's how I would see it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I hear you. And I totally agree that there are these systems that probably existed that have led to certain disparities the way like, like currently, but at the same time, don't you think progress means moving past that? Right? Mm -hmm. Like if those systems Mm -hmm. existed, then like, I just think, 
Yeah, like what what is the ultimate effect on on somebody's life of emojis, right? Like can can we you you know like it's supposedly this whole system, right? But clearly there's parts of this that are really important and parts that are, are not, right? So like to me the economic inequality it's like so many problems for the African American community in the United States really boil down to like economic issues, right? And and so that's really tricky to fix, right? That's really tricky to fix. And and like I mean in Australia, the Abor- Aboriginal community, right? There's not that many Aboriginal people in Australia, right? And and so like the but there's this there's this enormous gap between them and whites in terms of economics, right? And I actually don't think that and maybe maybe you have a different perspective because you lived in Australia for a while. Like I I feel like any white Australian, if you ask them, would would you like to like drastically improve conditions for Aboriginal communities and like have them uh, have more like resources and uh, not not like uh, be incarcerated so much and, and like have better health outcomes and stuff like that. Like almost everybody would say yes, but it's very like it's very difficult to solve. Like so, like this the economic inequality between whites and blacks in the U.S. Right? Like w- like what policies do you think would would actually help that right because i like I, I can promise you that like making white people aware of how they use emojis will do absolutely zero for sure. that for that, sure. core, that core issue right so like and i i can accept that you know to me the the emoji focus is overly granular like if i had yeah. done my whole phd then yes we can focus a podcast around that one emoji post mm. i haven't done my phd on the use of emojis mm. so to me it's like an important example of how we communicate white as norm, thereby eradicating the diversity that exists in the world. It's one example, and to but, me it's an interesting one. And the other thing is, what do you mean exactly when you say oppression? Like, I feel like nowadays people are throwing around words like systemic racism and oppression just like in this, you know, hand-wavy manner without... Like, I'm not sure what people really mean when they say that. And sometimes I think about how people who talk about oppression... I mean, I, I don't think people like know what real oppression looks like, right? I mean, I come from a culture where, you know, women, you know, have to cover their heads. They have to, they aren't educated. They aren't, right? I think they're, though, that feels like real oppression to me. Um, like there's parts of the world where that's still the case, right? Where, yeah, I mean, again, I come from a country where women were, you know, thrown into the funeral pyre when their husbands died, right? I mean, that's oppression. Yeah, it's a tricky <laughs> but, thing, Kyle, because you yeah. say like, you say like, well, Black people in the Bronx have experienced oppression based on race, right? And like, yeah, maybe. So we have some statistics that show that like for every 100 black people that applies for a job, maybe like three of them will not get an interview based on race, right? This is a famous study, Bertrand and Mullenathan, where white white callback rate was like 9%, black callback rate was like 6%, right? So so maybe, but may, also like maybe not. This is, and there's, there's other things in our society, like a black person needs like far worse, like they can get into Harvard with far worse grades than a white person or, or like an Asian person, right? So like when you make these blanket statements, like, oh, well- Because of affirmative action, is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, which is designed well, to address those structural inequities yeah right 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 um but it but it like there is also this the, these other I mean, things now, that, yeah, asian like, asian students are being discriminated against now right because right. they tend to over be over represented in certain and, yeah and like my, so my wife for example um 
does not like so she grew up like in a working class pretty poor family in houston um and she just doesn't think that she's been a victim of racial oppression in her life like if you ask her like you know can you name like times when you've experienced racial oppression like she really like says like no like i I don't think that's been part of my existence and in like to her like the the people that have kind of helped her most in her life have like quite often been white men so like this, this narrative about like you know there's this racial oppression in society there's these systems that are sort of oppressing every every person of color it just like this rings very true i think um to a substantial number of people of color i'm sure like a substantial number of people of color would say yeah racism is a serious problem in my life um but also like it doesn't it doesn't to others and i i think that like just to what, like we often say like oh, as white people like we can't understand the experience of people of color right like we we have no insight into actually what it's like to be a person of color so if if somebody says that they feel like they've been a victim in their life of racial oppression you just have to listen to that you just have to trust that right um but at the same time there's this awkward thing because like you're saying well we can't understand it um but you're also saying like we we so like we we have to accept when somebody says they are a victim of racial oppression but then if somebody else says well i don't really i didn't really experience that I, that wasn't my experience I, I don't necessarily agree with that i guess you would probably say well we, we have to accept that too and everybody's experience is is different but I, I feel like we this this um move of like you can't un- actually understand what it's like to be black it's only used when somebody is trying to sort of say, well, I don't think it's that bad to be black. It's never used when somebody's trying to say, oh, I think it's really, really bad to be black. Like, mm-hmm. we, we never sort of hear this this argument trotted out with where somebody's, like, trying to be super compassionate and say, like, oh, it must be terrible to be black in the United States. Nobody ever says, hang on, you're white. You, like, you have no idea what it's like to be black <laughs> in the United States. And I, I think, like, for you, what, like, what I'm hearing is, like, you're actually make, you're making a lot of assumptions, like, based on, I guess, your exposure to sort of anti-racist educators which i i just don't think they speak for most people of color in the united states these people that are sort of highly educated they've gone to university they like think about race all day and all night uh and sort of like probably like yeah like probably have like in many cases i believe like quite a deep resentment and mistrust of of white people um and have sort of like built up these like fields of knowledge about how white people are constantly oppressing us even with things as innocuous as emojis or um microaggressions and stuff like that and they you know we yeah they're, they're, i just feel like we are currently in this mode of just accepting very uncritically uh this this view that is actually like quite a minority view even among people of color and so we like it's fine to say things like yeah every black <laughs> every person of color in the bronx experiences racial oppression even though that's not that's that's not actually the experience of uh, like a lot of people of color um and yeah um i feel like you might yeah you might be making sort of the same mistake in the in the other direction of assuming that you you know understand because you've you've studied or you've you've read a few books by people that like have a particular view of the situation sure and all i can say to that is you might be right like if i am misrepresenting the experience of oppression from a racial perspective 
I don't really know that, you know, like I haven't done a full <laughs> survey of the entire population of any country in regards to their identity and, and how they experience it. And it. All I can say, honestly, is absolutely like that's one of the places that we just seem to fundamentally disagree. Like, I do believe that it's the predominant experience of people of colour and black people to have experienced racism and microaggressions and that it has impacted their lives on a daily basis, but also on a life trajectory basis. I just believe that because that's what I'm hearing. And you're right, like, is that confirmation bias? Is that the truth? I really don't know. I genuinely don't know. That's the assumption that I make. Um, and I and I find it helpful because to me, I'm I'm trying to come from a place of my liberation is tied up with your liberation, like the liberation of all of these categories of identities that I think you're rightly identifying, both of you rightly identifying as being restrictive, you know, and and kind of you know two Ding us. I do think that that's happening. The way that I perceive it is that that's like the awkward transformational equality piece. You know, there's a saying that, and again, in this work I would use, um, that when we're used to privilege, equality can feel like oppression. So to me, that's how I interpret what you're saying now, that, you know, we're on the awkward equality bit to try to get to equity where none of this matters anymore, where none of this matters anymore. But right now we're in that, like, you know, oh, God, I've got to be aware of stuff I've never even thought about before. And I've got to think about that. And like I was saying earlier with the Me Too movement, like, really, truly, it was only through the Me Too movement that I could look back retrospectively at some of the sexual experiences that I've had and being like, that was it. That was it. There was no grand assault. It was no great violence. It felt crap. Now I can see why. I have a lens that says, oh, that was coercion. That was not consent. At the time, I internalized that as, oh, I guess I must be like not into this guy as much as I thought, or I guess I must have given out the wrong messages or something. I don't know. I guess I must have maybe communicated that I was up for it, right? Now, with this lens of the Me Too movement has given me and this understanding of what actually consent is, I can look back and make sense of my experiences. For me, that's healing. For me, that's healing, right? Super fucking angering as well. Like now I have to take responsibility and I have to put that responsibility on the men who were coercive towards me. And it generates a lot of discomfort and anger. Mm. And it also helps me realize, oh, that wasn't me. That was not me. I did not consent. Do I think that they intentionally took advantage of me? Maybe, maybe not. Was the impact coercive sex? Yes. That's such a tricky area, Kat. I'm like, because, I mean, we have, I don't know the status of this now, but like on our campus, there's this, uh, there's this thing that like, if you, if you don't get active consent, it's sexual assault. Uh, and I, I have a friend, actually, it's kind of a funny, funny story. I have a friend who was dating this guy and they were like, um, they were making out for the first time. <laughs> and he, so he was, you know, he was, you know, um, fondling Did he keep her. asking? Yeah. And, um. yeah, yeah. and he kept asking. And every, like, <laughs> and he, at one point he was like, is, is it okay that my hand is on your bottom? <laughs> And she, and she was just like, "Oh my god, that was the most awkward, 
horrible. Like, and she never called the guy back. And I was like, this poor dude, he's like, he's just been taught that this is what yeah. he has to do now. And yeah. he's like, so it's, it's, it's yeah. very tricky, Kat. Like, I, I honestly, like, if you're like now sort of reinterpreting past events and, and like, mm. I, I mean, I, yeah. I don't know, I don't know your experience. Like, I don't know what happened and stuff like that, but like, God, I'm so glad I'm married now because like if, if if I was if I was trying to date and like like anything, right? Like touch touching a woman's breast, touching a woman's butt, something like that. Right. I had this thing in my mind that well technically I'm I'm committing assault if I don't ask uh before I do this. Like man, that's yeah, that's I, that's a tough one. It's tough. Like not to disc I mean, I'm sure you know, but I will say I mean human interaction is so complicated and nuanced and I feel like you can't, right? We can't boil it down to right and wrong. You know, everybody brings, you know, baggage and their own lenses and their own experiences to everything. And I think we need to be mindful of that. And I think so much of human interaction just happens between the lines. And I think that's what makes it beautiful and special. And if you're going to, if we're going to take away that, like, that's not, that's not, you know, I don't think that's a good direction to go into. Um, I think for me, what's helpful is is understanding the lines. Like, that's what these lenses give me is like I can see the lines more clearly. So then I know how to be within them and how to move outside of them. So that's to, but, to continue the analogy. So like what you're saying, Paul, about you know the friend and the asking for consent because to me that's the description of being on that awkward equality pathway right it's like i've learned this new thing i'm trying to put it into practice it's super awkward for everybody and it'll get to the point where i like this has been my experience of of various things i've internalized that worldview so much that it's no longer clunky so now like i can practice embodied consent with my children and it's not awkward it's just like hey are you willing to do that i was actually wondering what you're planning to teach your kids about race right i this is like because and this is this gets back to this distinction between like colorblindness versus um whatever we want to call this like hyper wokeness when i was a kid uh, I remember like very clearly, like I was watching TV and there was like a black person on TV. And I asked my parents, like, why do, why do some people have darker skin than others? Like, why do some people have brown skin and some people have pink skin? And I like, they were like, oh, teachable moment, right? <laughs> so they, they like got very serious all of a sudden and said, look, look, Paul, this is very, very important. You must like... People have, you know, different different color skin, and it's very, very important that you never judge anybody by the color of their skin, and you never treat anybody different because we're all the same, uh, and it doesn't mean anything. Like right. the color of somebody's skin doesn't mean anything. Um, didn't talk about melanin. Doesn't tell you. Yeah. Doesn't tell you anything about a person, right? You cannot judge anything about a person by the color of their skin, and like to a kid, that makes perfect sense, right? right? Like you're just like, oh, okay, cool you're not going to teach your kids that like you're going to teach them this weird thing of like if you interact with somebody who has darker skin than you 
you hold power over them. You're part of a powerful group and they're part of an oppressed group. And you need to be, you need to be aware of that at all times and always judge a person by the color of their skin and always be like, never forget that you're interacting with a black person. And like, they're going to go to school and they'll be interacting with a black person. And they'll be like, oh, dude, my, my mom says I have power over you. And the other kid's going to be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Get out of here. I and think they'll, that's never be, they'll never be able to be friends. And it, it is a thing. Like there was an article in the New York Times by a, a black man who said that he was teaching his sons to be like, uh, like to, to really have strong doubts about the possibility of true oh, friendship yeah. with, with white people. And so, yeah, I like what, what are you going to teach them? And, and do you like, how, how, how do you want them to think about these things? If, if not the colorblindness, like, uh, like as a goal, at least. Well, I mean, almost like it's like the journey to equity, right? Like equity is almost like the colorblindness state. It's like a post-race state where, where none of that matters because we've dealt with the systemic oppression that shows up in all of these different scales and all of these different pieces. And, and, and that's what I mean by systemic oppression. You were asking me earlier. So it's like, if there was no racist in the system, it would still function as oppressive towards different identities. That's what I mean by systemic racism. So what I teach my children, I mean, it depends on what age that they're at, but in general, the baseline is that we are growing up. I am raising you in a world that has different levels of value attached to various identities. That's my perception. And that's not right. That's not right. Right? So it's like I'm in this weird paragraph, par uh, paradox with my kids where it's like, I don't want to make race a big thing, right? So like what your parents did to you, like you were just asking a simple question that's like, oh, I've never experienced that before. It's like, oh, I didn't know that there could be blue flowers as well as pink flowers. I didn't know that. That's fascinating. And then imagine if your parents like, hang on a second. There's nothing wrong with blue flowers. Whoa. And you're like, oh, God, whoa! I didn't realize this was such a big, th a big thing. Mm -hmm. So for a kid making an observation, I would be really cautious to not put my story onto what they're saying. Like, they're just making an observation about what they see in the world. The story that creates about that gets created about that by the world is something that I want them to be aware of over time so that they can step in if they need to. Right. So if it's like they're in a, like I also live really rurally in Ireland. So there there's not a whole lot of racial diversity here, especially people who are not white with this like different ethnicities here, but not a whole lot of people of color here. So they're not exposed to racial diversity a lot, but I'm really keen to not make it a big deal preemptively and attach all of this baggage for them to hold it's not their place to hold that it's my place to understand how prejudice shows up within me and how I communicate that accidentally so that I can work on that and make sure that I'm you know not delivering a there's nothing wrong with being black just because they notice that someone's black right so it's this kind of strange paradox I'm feeling my way into it I don't really have an answer mm. um so yeah yeah, it's it's interesting because I I almost kind of like, you know, like my my parents was sort of saying like don't judge people by the color of their skin, and your your version had you know this recognition of power differentials 
in the world like yeah like some some races have been oppressed and treated terribly and i like i guess like i i kind of agree that that is important to be aware of like the, i guess the history the current sort of inequality i i wonder though so like as an irish person i want i'm this was i was really curious to ask you this like you're you're irish my i'm i'm actually mostly irish um in terms of my my background and you know we were horribly mistreated by the british right and i i'm curious <laughs> so like what you think yeah yeah smriti like we we can all like we can, <laughs> we can all, all bond get over get board, nice. like, but like what what is the appropriate sense in which we should think that that matters if we meet a british person today mm. right like if we right. if we if i we are interacting with a british person today and you know more like more or less we we belong to these groups that like i'm not sure the power dif- much power differential today that like um but like yeah there is this history of oppression from one group to the other so you could i'm sure you could make all sorts of arguments about one group being having more power somehow um so like isn't it I like I I guess I just like don't feel that it's fully fair <laughs> if, like if there's some British kid that really had nothing to do with any of that to sort of like allow that to color my interaction with them. Uh, yeah. So I, yeah. What do you think? I'd like, like to what, respond to that. I think that's yeah, a really good question, and thank you for that. It's helping me think about things a bit more clearly. So I suppose how I would perceive it is that I would, in an ideal world, I would like the bulk of that labor like to work out like what the interaction should be to be on the oppressor and i'm using inverted commas because that person so that british person has come from an identity that represents the oppressor especially in relation to me as somebody who's lived in a country that's colonized by british people right so in an ideal world i would want that person to be like okay there's a dynamic here that i need to be conscious of because I'm me and because I have this lens, I would also be aware of the ways in which I have er- internalized my prejudice towards that British person. So for me, because I grew up, you know, poor rural Irish, um, I have an internalized judgment of myself as being stupid as being uneducated, that comes up really strongly when I'm in conversation with people who have an upper-class British accent. That is an experience that I have. When I hear people with that very upper-class upper British accent, I have a story that happens inside my head that I'm like, they think I'm so stupid. They think I'm a stupid bog Irish. I don't like them. And I have to work on that, right? I have to be aware that that's my story that I carry. So that if I'm conscious of that, then I can go into that relationship knowing that I have that lens hmm. and knowing that it's working a story on me. Hmm. And then if I have the capacity and, you know, maybe the support at that time, I can be conscious of it and work on it and be like, oh, that's what that is. Mm-hmm. I'm triggered. Would you would you ever say that to an African American? Like, would you like because so, that sounds pretty reasonable to me? But my my sense is that nobody would ever say that to an African American. That like, 
oh, well, when you're interacting with a white person, you need to do work too to work through like the prejudices that you're bringing to that interaction. I feel like that you can't say that. I would that. personally like that, never say that because it would not be my place to say that to a person of color, a black person. I know that in the lineage that I've been taught through, that that's a huge part of it. So they call it um, like healing internally, like the intern, like at that scale. Remember, I was talking about inner and interpersonal and institutional. So the harm shows up from this perspective. The harm shows up at all of those scales. So where are we able to take responsibility for where we're perpetuating harm and where we're being harmed? Like there's ways that you, even you, Paul, in like all the identities of privilege that you hold, that you still experience harm, right? I'm sure there is. I mean, like, maybe. Like, I don't... I don't know. Like, I don't. I don't think about harm that way. Like, I. I yeah. I, I. I have a bit of a similar experience with British people too. Like, I. I. I actually think that they do consider themselves better than Australians. You know, because we were just like their convicts and stuff like that. So, like, there's been a number of times in my life where I've been interacting with British people mm. and found them a bit like condescending and snooty and stuff like that. But like, I. I really don't want to bring that to my next interaction with an English person. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, sure, and I, I don't it's either. It's not fair. It's not fair to do so. Like, until somebody is a jerk to you, you shouldn't be like on guard for it and and like yeah. looking for it. And I know that like it's that must be super hard, right? Like, um, but and labeling just labeling every British person as an oppressor. Like yeah. I, and just putting the onus it's a on loaded the, word. it's it is a very loaded word, and sure. I think it's very unfair. Again, like I said, like why should we be judging anybody based on their background? With, so without... what I said was oppressor in inverted commas, and what I added <laughs> to that was <laughs> I know, but I think this yeah, is important. Yeah. I think yeah, yeah. because I think this speaks to it. So I'm not just trying to backpedal, but I'm trying to be clear about what I'm saying. Like they represent an identity of the oppressor, especially in the context of an Irish person and an Indian person. And an Indian person, of course. But how do we move past these systems that existed in the past unless we're willing to let them go? Sure. And so for me personally, and through this particular perspective that I hold around race, it's helpful for me to recognize that I do hold that perspective in relation to upper class British accents yeah. so that I can work on it and so they can be like oh my god okay that is definitely not the truth right. it might be they might be being a jerk but it might also be just my interpretation so I take that responsibility to be aware of that and do that work because I am the person who holds less mm. power in that situation mm. I hope that they mm. will also do that work and that's why I think this work is really important for white people yeah. because but we I have traditionally mm. I don't think you hold less power than them like I, I've actually never felt like that with any British person but that might also be because you know Indian people were like oh you're going to come here and you know call us you know primitive and teach us stuff and we're going to come and just beat you at your own game <laughs> <laughs> well so cat so like that that actually sounds reasonable. The part that like I really question is when you said, "Well, I would never say that to an African American person because mm. that's that's not my place, right?" Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like I think you're you're sort of implicitly admitting there that there's this there's this real like 
treatment of uh, African-Americans, people from like minority racial groups as being this sort of special case yeah. that cannot, cannot be criticized. You can't sort of push back on anything they say. Otherwise, like you're just furthering the oppression and stuff like that. And, and that I think is, is problematic because like, like we said, confirmation bias is a thing. Like neuroticism is a thing. Like we, if somebody call, says, oh, you harmed me with your, your racism, you just committed a racism on me. Like, I think we have to be able to say, well, like how, like, can, like, can you pro- provide evidence of that? Like, can we, can we discuss whether that's true rather than, rather than this thing of like, oh, well, you're a minority. I'm a, like, you're, you're the oppressed group. I'm the oppressor. I, I now just like, have to accept every, everything you say and listen to everything you say and a, any accusation yeah so i, I, think, I think ideally we we you know in that equity space you know not in this awkward equality space in that equity space yes it looks like that it's like hang on a second well, we have addressed sorry, those power differences what do you mean by this awkward equality phase so just a reference to the analogy I was making earlier, like in, in, in the equity that I'm trying to get to, like in the place where, you know, it doesn't matter anymore and we're mm-hmm. almost like post-race and none of our identities have any impact in our lived experience, mm-hmm. right? That's mm-hmm. e- equity. But now we're in this like, you know, middle space in between where we've been asleep, certainly as white people, to the privilege and how that impacts other people um, who don't hold those privileges those intersectional privileges we're waking up to that right and we're we're trying to address that and we're doing it awkwardly so everything feels like super conscious and it feels like we don't understand as white people what Mm -hmm. the rules for engagement are anymore if we have to be sensitive to that it's like if i've just become aware that i hold a gender identity that's traditionally represented more power than your gender identity and now i'm just being aware of that oh uh, uh, i don't know how to deal with that right it's the awkward equality phase so yeah Mm. so in the equity phase yes like the relationships that can hold that level of dialogue have been developed because the power differentials have been addressed that's how i would see this so but right now it's like The, the trust is not there. The relationship is there. And in the worldview that I've been taught through, and, and I don't know whether this is helpful or accurate or not, like I am open to hearing your critique of that. But from my perspective, like if somebody tells me that I've caused them harm and the relationship is not there, like let's say it's just someone I've met and they're just like, oh, like I didn't say that you could touch my hair, okay? Then I'd be like, whoa, I'm really sorry. I'm totally sorry. I wouldn't be like, oh, why can I not touch your hair? What's going on that I can't touch your hair? Is there something wrong with your hair today? Is there something wrong with me? Why are you judging me? I just wouldn't do that because the relationship to hold that conversation is not there. Now, if that was a really close friend of mine and we had addressed those differentials that show up as power differentials that you know cause oppression depending on your different identities, then we could have that conversation. But when we don't have that relationship, then it's just safer to be like, I, and, and here's why, actually, here's why. Because the risk of a person of color to raise that harm with me is too great. The impact on them, from what I hear, from their direct experience, is like pushback, denial, gaslighting, derailing, 
claiming that the intention wasn't there and therefore the impact couldn't have been there. Like, I've done all those things. I've been in that place. Like, what? No, I didn't. I didn't mean to. What? No, no, no. Total, you know, denial of what's just happened. That's a further microaggression on them. It's further labor on them. But isn't that I, at your that point, lived experience, Kat? If you did not feel like you had, you know, been hurtful, intentionally hurtful, isn't that your truth? Isn't that also valid? Totally true for me and totally valid for me. Yeah. 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 And I mean, it's, it's, but it's odd that we put, we were putting the responsibility on one group of people. That's what I'm, my issue is. And I, the idea that the relationship needs to, to be there for you to have that conversation. My problem is, I think putting these lenses on people means that that relationship will just not develop. I think that is what that's going to lead to. People will just not feel comfortable enough with each other to be able to have those conversations. And that's a problem. Yeah, that is a problem. Yeah. yeah. Like at um, NYU, for example, I think just last year they brought in segregated dorms. Yeah. Right. So like now, I mean, what, 50 odd years after the civil rights movement, there's these black students at NYU saying, I, I just don't feel comfortable living with white people. I want to have our own safe space, right? And yeah, so I understand that. Now this it it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't feel like progress. And <laughs> like I you know, like I I guess I can't I can't prove it, but I suspect that this this whole movement of like recognizing increasingly recognizing microaggressions, uh increasingly sort of focusing on people's identity groups rather than them as individuals could be uh, just exacerbating the discomfort of these black students with other other white students. And so we're really going in the wrong direction in terms of like people feeling comfortable and getting that relationship that, that you talked about. But I also wanted to ask like what you think equity means, right? Because these days... Um, you know, evidence of inequity is uh, non-proportional representation in particular, like fields, right? Um, unequal distribution of resources between between groups, um, and I guess like my, if if we t- choose to define equity that way, right? Like um, it, we don't have equity until there's perfect representation of every identity group in every sector of society if there's absolutely equal distribution of resources between every identity group um, that we can name in society uh, we will never we'll never get to equity we will always be living in a quote-unquote system of oppression Um, even if like well in in the view of people like you even if that's like even if that's not the case right so like um a young writer, Coleman Hughes, has, uh, often talks about this fact that, like, it's actually incredibly unusual for resources to be distributed equally between groups, even when sort of oppression is is not really available as an explanation, right? So he talks about um, in the United States, uh, Russian Americans have like thirty percent more wealth on average than French Americans. So, like, former de- descendants of Russian immigrants have more wealth than former descendants of French immigrants, right? Now, bo- both groups are white, um, and it probably wouldn't have surprised you if I said that the 
the inequality went in the other direction, that the French Americans had more wealth than the Russian Americans, right? Because like, who knows, this is just some random, random artifact, probably of random accident of history, random accident of slightly different cultures, slightly different behaviors and stuff like that. So yeah, I guess like, I'm, I'm interested in like, it's easy to look at our world and say, there's inequity, right? Like um, white, white households have on average, like eight times the wealth of black households and stuff like that. But what, like, I know you have some pretty out there ideas of the future that you would create, like if you were, if you were boss of the world. Um, and we've, you know, we're like, I think the first time we met, you talked about how this, nobody should go to school, for example, and like every, everybody should, and like, so, but no, no, but seriously though, because if we are holding up these kind of things of like, uh, you know, disproportionate representation in fields, like unequal resources between groups as, as evidence of inequity, like what, what, what does equity look like? Like what, and what, what is the, what is the actual roadmap of, of getting there in your view? I know that's a big, hell of a big question, but what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I don't have an answer to that. It's a great question. And it's made me realize that the picture that I want to form is a very broad one to showcase inequity. To me, I would probably start at the worldview values stage. So to me, like policies and statistics and all of those data, like cold data um, that we extract from relationships, you know, resources in inverted commas about the living earth. We're talking about the living earth, but we have internalized capitalism so strongly that we don't even see that that's an inequity. That's an inequity right there. Perceiving that forest, you know, that crocodile as a resource, that is inequitable at its basic worldview level. You know, and the comment around schooling, like, the, what is the methodology as well as the content of schooling teaching us? It's teaching us white supremacy. It's teaching us colonization in its content, in <laughs> its worldview. I come from a country where my grandmother had to learn to speak English and where very few of my country people still speak our native tongue and certainly fluently. But you guys are white, though. That's not white supremacy. That's like English supremacy. In my country, we were forced to learn English. Um, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. We were also, you know, we learned math. And I think I was learning English, to learn is English is a good too. thing. Yeah, you can't yeah. just drop that at the end of the pod. <laughs> like, our schools <laughs> teach white supremacy. I mean, yeah, I, they I teach, absolutely. like, English is, you know, by accident of history, uh, because like the English conquered the world and it became like widely spoken. That's not an accident. That's oppression. That's deliberate. Oh, no, like, it's, it's kind of an accident that like that happened to be it's the language so. of the group. That happened to be I the mean, language it, of the group that colonized I mean, the world. It could have been an accident that yeah, Genghis Khan could have conquered the whole world. Yeah, right? well, he did. And if the industrial Mongolia, indi- yeah. if the industrial revolution had have happened at the time of Genghis Khan, we'd probably all right. be speaking Mongolian. So that's Mongolian, yeah. that's all I mean of like sure, it's an accident of history. Like white is bad. English is bad any more than I would be saying Mongolian is bad. Mm. I'm saying that's a dominant ideology that is represented in the ways that we think, in the ways that we speak, in the ways that we value some bodies over other bodies. That's all tied up from the perspective that I would hold 
in these models that say to have value in our society, you have to be able-bodied of a certain size. It certainly helps if you fit the um, the ideals of beauty. It certainly helps if you're white. It certainly helps if you're skinny. It certainly helps if you speak English. These are the ways in which our world assigns values to some people over other people. But and I, those but values can, have lived experiences. I can make that argument like 3,000 years ago. You probably had more value if you were able-bodied and you could hunt and you were more intelligent and you could figure out you know, how to strategize. Like, I think that's always been true. I, mm. I, but I, I sort of fundamentally disagree that schools are teaching white supremacy. I mean, if there's anything, we need more education, right? We need people to be able to think for themselves. Sure, and that's we what... need more critical education. We need more Absolutely. diverse education. Sure, yeah. yes. Why are we having this conversation in English and not in Native American, which is where you're calling in from? Why am I not speaking Giagich in my in my native tongue? Well, we, the, I mean. We wouldn't have been able to talk to each other. Yeah, if, if, we, we if need you to have, have a conversation. <laughs> yes, well, and it's wonderful it? that we can have it in a shared language. Is that but how you why, actually say but, Gaelic? That is. And, uh, but why is it this? Why is it this? But who cares? Well, like, we can talk yeah. to each other. It's just a language. Like, who cares that we, we you know, we... I care. My language like, was colonized. I care. My grandmother but, uh, and her mother tongue and all of the wisdom that's tied up in language, all of the stories of place... All of the interpretations of the yeah, world but then how many, that are connected but how to many how languages, we speak. How many languages disappeared, came and went in Ireland before that? Like we, we couldn't even understand an English speaker from like a thousand years ago because the language just changes. Like my, I mean, I, like it's my language too. Like that's, that's where my ancestors came from too. Like, it, and I mean, the the solution. To, I mean, if, yeah. I mean, I agree. Like, there's a lot of Indian people that don't even speak their own, you know, you know, mother tongue. They kind of just know English, and I think that's a problem but the but the but the solution should be to get people to value their own language mm -hmm. and stick with it as opposed to saying that english is somehow bad like i never I, or, said that english was bad or that you know that it's somehow a problem that we are all speaking english but, but and not Kat, this is the problem because like this use of language is really careless right like to say that like schools teaching english is white supremacy yeah. you're just like debasing the term because white supremacy is a real thing like there is a kkk right. there is a nazi party there are people who think the white race is superior and we should like like wipe out jews right like that's a real so what thing I would do and so to now in, use the word to refer to yeah. like an english class in primary school it's like come on like no yeah. this is an actual thing and i think like to call everything white supremacy like sort of makes the term almost meaningless and to say well there's we're not we're not saying white supremacy is bad because like it is bad right like we there's racists out there we we need to be fighting those racists right. not just like in enlarging the circle of racism to include like fucking english teachers yeah. i mean there's pragmatic reasons to learn english all across the world it makes you a part of it makes you a global citizen essentially to be able to know english well and yeah, because the British colonized the world and now we have English as sort of the language that we all use. Maybe it was, you know, oppressive and at the time, but now in a way it's liberating, right? I think education is sort of the great equalizer. I still believe that. Yeah, and like Smriti might not be in Berkeley if she didn't learn English. Exactly. Up, right? Like this is... Exactly. Yeah. It's... Uh, well, okay. So what do you think, like, about that point? That we need to be, like... 
a bit more careful of our language and reserve white supremacy for actual white supremacists. Like, yeah, do you not- thank you for coming back to me on that because I think we're we're into our reactivity to each other and our <laughs> worldviews, which is not helpful for any of us. So I'm noticing that in myself as well. Okay, so. Uh- Yeah, okay. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I know you said that, like, debating is, you don't want to debate, but I also don't think that that's a problem, right? I think it's okay for us to debate, and it's okay for us to disagree and be reactive. I think that's how we'll get to, like, a, you know... So this, yeah, and to me, you know, this, this ties into the same kind of worldview that I'm pointing towards. So to me, how I interpret debating is that there is a a baseline assumption, a baseline worldview that says that one of us holds the truth (laughs) and we have to get to that truth. There is an empirical truth and it's out there and we have to find it. And I just don't hold that worldview. I just don't hold that worldview. Part of me does, like part of me that's struggling with reactivity and trying to like be like, right about this, because I, you know, I'm attached to my beliefs and all that. Like there's part of me that definitely is. But like underneath that is like, I don't believe that that's true. Yeah, but I And I then the lens... Sorry. Sorry. I don't mean to cut you off, but I do get people off. But um, I don't think it's like well, that I think I'm true, like I'm right and there's some truth that I hold and you don't or anything like that. I think we both and we all have our own opinions of the world like this is not right none there's no right and wrong here whatever we're discussing it's you know your view of the world and my view of the world and we're just sharing it right and yeah maybe there's emotions involved and that's fine right yeah yeah i'm not afraid of the emotions i'm just afraid of the underlying perspective that one of us is going to come out of this wrong and to me this is like populating an ecosystem of perspectives and it's fascinating and i wish i was less reactive than i was but to me it's really interesting yeah yeah i mean i don't think one of yeah any of us are going to come out right or wrong um it's just like you know our thoughts on the table which is a good thing but what do you think about applying this word that has traditionally been reserved for the kkk i hear that i hear that question you're now just applied it to like the entire education system uh, i did and i so, did and i and i stand by it i will not back down from that okay. perspective so you, but, okay so the like so, so the what's, framework what's, i would what use the, what's the difference then between a, somebody in the kkk or like an actual neo-nazi and some an english w- well-meaning english teacher in uh in ireland so to me, it's a helpful perspective. I was also really reactive when I heard these terms. Um, another term that I was introduced to was violence in, it, as a representation of harm and microaggression. And when I heard that term and when I heard white supremacy, I had a similar reaction to what I see you having, which was like, that's ridiculous. You're totally conflating issues. That is not what's happening. Violence is physical. Uh, white supremacy is the KKK and it's blackface and it's, you know, it's really obvious overt racism and conflating anything else with that is, you know, really muddying the waters to the point where it's not helpful. Then my experience with working with new language around this was that it helped me see, and again, I don't know whether this is right, but this is my journey. It helped me see that there were experiences of people who hold different identities to me, not just racially, like also gender, um, body size, abilities, neurodiversity, all of those pieces that were uh, different in their experience to mine. I've lost my train of thought. 
um, how you came to be more comfortable with using words like white supremacy yeah. in, and so, in an all-encompassing way. Recognizing language like violence and like white supremacy helped me to take the impact of my behavior more seriously because I was like, I don't want to call that violence. But then I'm being told by people that in their experience that feels like violence it feels like over and over again and there was a great video that i often show that talks about microaggressions like um mosquito bites and if you're somebody who only ever gets a mosquito bite every now and again then it's no big deal it's no big deal if somebody says to me every once in a while oh you're irish where are you from right but when it's every single day and it's the first thing that every single person says to me and then they reduce my identity to my accent then that's like being bitten by mosquitoes over and over again. And at some point you might see me apparently, you know, blow my top and get really angry to one individual who happens to ask me about my accent. And then it's like, why are you so angry, cat? Like they're just trying to connect mm. with you. What's going on? Mm. But I've had that every single day with every single person that I've met. Hang on, hang on. Right? Or as a woman who presents in a particular way, you know, if every single man I meet is hitting on me mm. or is in some way sexualizing me, mm. then I also start to normalize that. So, so for me, it's it's a helpful dialogue. And then at this point in, like, if I was teaching, I would look at the, the pyramid of oppression. Have you seen those examples? Where it talks about, like, overt um, racism in the way that you're talking about it. So that, you know, the KKK, that's overt racism. But... At various scales in that pyramid, then, we have, like, um, overt, covert. Let me see if I can get it here for you. But I, I wonder, like, whether it's the people asking you about your accent are, that are, like, reducing you to your accent or whether you're doing that. Yeah, and, and, and then you're getting into perception, right? So my perception is that that didn't... I didn't know anything about, like, critical perspectives of oppression when that was happening happening to me i just knew it didn't feel like i was being seen mm. i just didn't feel like they were meeting cat it felt like they were meeting an irish person which who they were very keen to tell me they knew everything about or that their grandfather had such and such mm. and do i know such and such and i was just being reduced to this but Kat, that's just small talk <laughs> you know that's yeah. people and like also like you said just now that it like Every day, every person was reducing you to your Irish identity. So, like, we met 2009. You led that workshop. There was something like, what, 20, 25 high school students. I mean, which one of us reduced you to your Irish identity? Because you just said it, it's, it's every person. It's all the time. So, which I don't think I, I said it's every I don't, person I don't who think greets I me in you. that way. Every person what? Every person who greets me in that way to ask me about my accent and then does not continue with um, a method of engagement that feels authentic. It just feels like I wanted to know that thing about you. Now I've categorized you. Now I want to tell you everything about such and such and I'm not seeing you. Mm. But that, I mean, that is just like interpersonal skills that people don't have. Uh, you know, I mean, to take personal offense to that, to people not having good, mm. yeah, interpersonal uh, what, what's skills. What's fascinating to me is that you're kind of admitting that, like, 
you didn't really see it that way before and you've been given this lens to reinterpret the events and now you see it ah this is this is like microaggression this is like and i just i can't tell you what your own experience is all i can tell you is like as a psychologist and thinking about these things is that we are we're incredible at interpreting things and seeing what we want to see in in things yeah. and, sure. and it's it, sure. it, it, that's what makes this that's what makes this whole thing so dangerous to me it, like yeah. carving up the world into identity groups teaching people that there's these like unseen like power struggles going on behind like everyday interactions i just feel that it's gonna it's just gonna make interpersonal interactions but across racial lines incredibly difficult incredibly yeah. awkward like lead to mistrust lead to more right. prejudice than it actually reduces and yeah. that's an open like, question I, like, I, I, sides, I, yeah. dude like i can't prove yeah that. you're making like, it and yeah. this is like, i can't prove that we don't have good data on this yet but all i see is like people like you are just taking this particular worldview that's come out of a particular subsection of academia and just running with it and just teaching it to people like it's the gospel truth and i think that there's i think it's risky like i think it's i i yeah like i and i i worry and i yeah like like i just think you know the world is burning the world is dying so i'm we interested because it seems like a predominant critique is of this particular perspective that i hold mm. so and it also sounds like you know you accept that there is um racism mm. in the world mm -hmm. i'm wondering what you both see as being a more helpful approach maybe that's a place for us to end like, wh what else is there? Like, you know, to me, I, I, I don't have all the answers. And this is mm. not my way of saying, hey, mm. this is the one right way. Like, mm. that's the polar opposite of my worldview. Mm. This is a method. This is a lens that has been helpful for me in recognizing the way in which I can be oppressed mm. and the ways in which I can be an oppressor in my behaviors, even without the intention. So for me, it's been helpful. But I'm interested, like, what would be in your perspectives great, the way to go great question i know what i think mm. but do you want to go smoothly what do i think is a way forward i mean i mean yeah there's absolutely no doubt that racism is a thing and i think at the i mean definitely structurally we need to make changes to to make sure that yeah people are not disadvantaged in in you know structurally like that's definitely true but i think at an interpersonal level i mean i think educating people i know i keep talking about this but i honestly think that's a way forward right i think empowering those who are disenfranchised is the way to go right not making everybody else feel guilty for holding privilege but giving people i think what what keep what is missing in all these conversations and what people who kind of engage in this kind of rhetoric are taking away from everybody else is agency. I think humans have so much agency over how they interpret the world and how they interpret the world then affects their behavior and how they operate in the world and how people see you. So I think reminding people that they have agency and empowering people to be, you know, to think for themselves and be able to, and, and to also remind them to not to give people the benefit of the doubt and, you know, come into situations with good intentions and, and to, you know, it's obviously not true all the time, but I think, again, how you come into a situation 
in some way becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if, if, if every black person is going out thinking that every white person is going to be racist towards them, I think they'll see that racism and it will lead to more inter bad interactions, which will then confirm their you know pre pre-existing notions. And I think that we need to move away from. Yeah. Mm. Personally, um, my tongue-in-cheek answer is interracial marriage. I just need to like be having a lot of sex across across racial lines, producing more. Just and having more these ambiguous babies where nobody beautiful can mixed kids who are like nobody can even tell what race they are. So right. we, we all yeah. just end up this this nice medium shade of brown. Yeah. My my real answer is like I I just think that. Yeah, I, I like. I think that so much of this comes down to economics. Uh, yeah. So much of this comes down to economic inequality, and like that. Really, like, I think we will progress as a society when we sort of like come to recognize that like working class whites, working class blacks, working class Latinos have a lot more in common with each other than the people that are the same color as them who are, you know, living in the mansions and stuff like that and start to demand more wealth redistribution, more, like, better, more equal education. Like, you're never going to get right. equality of opportunity, right? Like, you never, like, because even if the schools in the poorest neighborhoods are amazing and have all the resources, if those kids' parents themselves didn't go to college, there's always going to be that yeah. disadvantage there of, like, they're not getting the same... Uh, advantages at home or like extra education right. in terms of like hidden curriculum and stuff like yeah. that but we can like yeah we can make society far more e and but also just like i mean to me i'm less concerned for example that like of the racial makeup of the board of uh google something than i am with like the absolute gap between the CEO of Google, their pay and the, you know, McDonald's, McDonald's employee, right? Like, so like, and I think that that stuff is about, that stuff's totally about organized labor. And I think that these, these sort of like, uh, racial resentments and racial divisions have always gotten in the way of like organized movements of working class people. So like, to me, yeah, like I really see I really see the prospects of improving society to be much more about just like overall economic inequality um, and not worrying so much about gender division or racial division and stuff like that. That's, that's my take on it. And I, how this stuff gets better. I don't know. Like, honestly, like I feel like generations react to previous generations. Right. And I, I totally think that it's possible that in 10 years, um, our kids uh, or the people that are, y are young now are going to reject a lot of this stuff, right? And they're going to say like, fuck that, like you don't have power over me just because of the color of your skin. Like, like, I don't, like I'm not going to treat people as members of their groups because like I, like I don't care about that. And there will be like a bit of a pendulum, pendulum swi switch, pendulum swing back mm -hmm. to a more like colorblind, who cares what color your skin is. Like it, it doesn't affect me i mean and i don't know like i i think that we are headed in the right direction on these things even though like you have like i shared that tweet with you like somebody in my twitter feed said <laughs> racial injustice is at an all-time high 
I shared it with Smriti too. And it, like, what a ridiculous thing to say. But like, that this just kind of shows how like out of control I think this this stuff is in in academic circles that somebody could actually say that and there's yeah. nobody nobody in the comments saying what all time so <laughs> higher than when like we had slaves and stuff but anyway like I wonder do they mean and I wonder is this discomfort that we're feeling not that racism is at an all time high but that white people's awareness of racism is at an all-time high very and it feels uncomfortable because it, it's like to me this is accountability and you know talking about privilege as being associated with guilt certainly that was my starting place like because it does land with a whole lot of guilt when when you first learn about the ways in which you've held privilege in a way that oppresses other people privilege just is right you can't give it away so from my perspective this this method of teaching is about recognizing the ways in which all of us hold different privileges depending on those different intersectional identities and learning how to use that responsibly to support other people who have less access to that but hold people accountable for what for being white not for being white because there's nothing wrong with whiteness what's wrong is that the systems of power that we have institutionalized give more access to people who have the dominant identities that we assign value to mm. but why should a white person be held accountable for that mm. Well, it's not that they should be held accountable is it as, a, as though it's some punishment. It's that I want to see how my identities hold power over people in a way that is not enjoyable mm. for their identities by normalizing, you know, hetero relationships, for example. Mm. That's a, a way that I would I don't know. be oppressive to people who I care about, who are in the LGBTQ community. I don't know who wrote it, but there's an interesting short story. It could have been Kurt Vonnegut, or like maybe Aldous Huxley or something like that, about a society that was like obsessed with equality, right? And so like uh, if, if somebody was attractive, more attractive than other people, they were disfigured. <laughs> or if somebody was like <laughs> everybody had sort of their legs cut off and was like... And, you know, more intelligent kids were denied education because it was all about, like, getting to this level of equality. And I just think mm, the, yeah, like, it's, a, it's sort of a reductio ad absurdum and, like, this grotesque caricature of this, like, eternal push towards equity, right? Like, and I guess the idea is that, like, human societies will never have perfect equity. Like, there'll always be people like there will always be people born with some advantages over others like you can never really get away with this unless you are willing to like have so almost like a nightmarish level of totalitarianism like like top-down control over a society but i i think i doubt that you think we can have perfect equity and is it more just in your mind that like human societies should always be aware of privilege and disadvantage and should always be trying to do what they can to make up for privilege and disadvantage is is that it or do you think we could get to a, a perfectly equitable society 
I, I mean, my view is, is we've had perfectly equitable societies and we continue to have them in some traditional societies because even though people are born with differences, you know, differences that we would in our culture call disabilities and that in our culture would be experienced as disabilities, to me that's a cultural context. To me that's the structures that make it harder for people who hold those expressions of humanity it's like neurodiversity now, you know, like thinking about how we learn in school to come back to that. It's geared towards a certain way of thinking and perceiving. For the most part, it's changing now a little bit. Things are getting better. But the dominant perspective is that that is the best way to learn, that intellectual knowledge is the way that we should be aiming to progress ourselves as a species. And so then, because our culture... Um, privileges some ways of being that it al that align more closely to the values that the culture holds it therefore makes people who experience the world differently uh, experience oppression but that's not a rule so when that does that's not like gravity like that's a cultural story what, that says oh you don't have a place here because you don't think like were this perfectly equitable in your mind well, I don't know if they were perfectly equitable, but I mean, definitely there would be less impact in some traditional societies for having different ways of being and different ways of perceiving. For example, um, in Native Americans, like the two-spirit culture or this notion that gender sits across the binary, beyond the binary. Like, so therefore, those people are not discriminated against just because they don't fit into a gender binary or, or a sexual attraction binary, right? So it's not that, oh, you happen to be born gay, oh God, therefore you're going to be oppressed. It's that, no, our culture has values and worldviews that sees those people as gay as having less value and therefore treats them differently. But that's not a rule. That's not a gravity. That's a, so that's where I find my hope, actually. Because to me, mm. you know, I think one of the things I was ranting about when I met you first was that I just read Ishmael. Mm. And that was one of the things that really lit up my life because it gave me hope that there were other methods of creating culture that would be um, better at meeting other people's needs, better at meeting all of our needs, our, our deep human needs for connection and for belonging and for validation and acceptance like you know we are in a particularly harsh cultural construct right now mm. that is very clear about what has value and what doesn't mm. and that's just a cultural story and that's where i get hope because we can change stories we can change culture like that's that's why i do the work that i do in general with the change agency is because to me those cultural contexts are what actually can get tended to and that's why i find this particular lens helpful because it helps me tend to the culture that I'm in. Hmm, that's an interesting answer. I, I think in Native American tribes, often if you reached a certain age, you just had to leave the tribe and walk out <laughs> and die. So like, we, could, we could say like, that's a little bit oppressive. That's a little bit ageist maybe, but no, I, I kind of right. get what you're saying. Like uh, the, yeah. the idea that like, yeah, like uh, you can observe certain cultures that just treated certain identity markers in completely different ways to ours and and so that that becomes like a, a possibility for human existence man we've but been i yeah i agree you know that there's certain cultures that value something over the other we value productivity versus human connection and i totally totally thing. agree that we need to change a lot of that Fitness, do not agree way. more yeah 
We've been talking for really, yeah, really long time. Yeah, we could time. talk forever. Um, but I think it was uh, okay. I think it was reason <laughs> reasonably productive. Um, we'll yeah. see when we hear it back, eh? Is there, is there anything else... I mean, you, you've been kind enough to give us all this time. Yeah, you're, thank you're, you. You're this big shot director of this agency now, the change agency. Yeah, that's the uh, great thing super about important that stuff. You just can lady. call yourself whatever. Super important lady. You've given us all this time very generously. So we, you know, we, we, we should give you the last word of the pod. The last word of the pod. I'm really bad at last words, actually. I never quite know how to end things partly because I think that this is all a process, right? It's an process that's unfolding. My interest is in how to shape the culture so that the process of unfolding our lives creates less harm. So I appreciate the ways in which you have brought both of your perspectives to that to help me consider the ways in which it might not be creating less harm, it might be creating more harm. Um, I think we have some fundamental areas that we agree and some fundamental areas that we disagree and that's okay and it's really great to be in dialogue and not to be in battle where you know we just dismiss each other off the bat because we interpret something that each other has said as meaning all of these different things that when we actually get into the nitty of a gritty of it it doesn't or it may not fully so thank you for listening and for sharing appreciate it yeah yeah no worries at all. Uh, we really enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was great. And so, yeah, um, we are going to have one more podcast uh, with uh, Rob Chavez Rob, next week. Yes. yes. And then we're going to go on a brief hiatus. I'm going to have a baby. Yes. <laughs> enjoy our December break yeah. and then we'll be back in, in the new year. But yeah, thanks so much, Kat. Yeah, um, thank you, Kat. And uh, yeah, uh, we hope... If there's anybody still listening <laughs> at this point, <laughs> it's a long podcast. Congratulations, yeah. you made it. This is by far <laughs> going to be by far our longest podcast. Um, but how it's, much are you going to edit this? Yeah, is this yeah, going to be might. not at all. Oh, it's good. But yeah, if you have some thoughts, you can share with you can share them with us on Twitter at more of comment, and uh, or you can email us at more of a comment at gmail.com. All right. Yeah. Have a great weekend, you guys. You too.